Hello and welcome back to the latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm late. I'm Lemuel. Also late. I'm late. Although this week we're early. Yes, we are. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. So I am releasing a bonus episode, and by bonus I mean extra, because I done messed up the last couple of weeks. It's not your fault. No, I was... A, a, an adorable child coughed in my face, and then I was sick for two weeks. Also, I went to Seattle to PodCon, which was awesome. And if you're listening because you met me at PodCon, hi, say hi to me on Twitter, or give me an iTunes review. But it was uh, an amazing thing. I'm hoping they do it again, and then we both go next year. Well, an adorable child coughed at you, and I didn't even get the adorable child. I got a cough at random at some point in a locked car, possibly, moving down a freeway. That's what you get for needing a ride from me. Right, there we go. I'll just walk home from now on. So, yes, I got sick from a small child, and then I passed my sickness on to Lemuel, and... I was getting better until two days ago when my Mm -hmm. cough started back up. But I got an episode out. Something's worth doing. It's worth doing well and thoroughly. (laughs) I got an episode out last Thursday. I aim to get another episode out next Thursday. But this is a special... Special... Christmas... Holiday-themed episode. Hide from your family. Mm -hmm. Can't take them anymore. Get away for a bit. Go listen to some weirdos talk about Twin Peaks. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God bless us, everyone. Everyone. And so the episode we're going to talk about today Uh is called Cooper's Dreams, wherein we do not see any of Cooper's dreams. No, it was very misleading. But we're getting many hints and um, callbacks to the dream that he had a few episodes ago. And it originally aired on May the 10th, 1990. And when I was looking at all of the things that happened on May the 10th, 1990, it was so remarkably similar to May the 3rd, 1990. Um, all the movies, all the TV, all the songs. Identical. So I'm going to skip all that. You want to read us the synopsis? Uh, yes, I do. Cooper, Truman, Deputy Hawk, and Doc Hayward. That sounds like a group of... Like comic book characters. It does. Uh, venture into the woods for a revelatory encounter with the log lady and find the location of Jacques Renault's cabin. In the meantime, Audrey continues her efforts to assist Cooper by taking a job at her father's department store, while Donna and James Hurley pursue their own line of inquiry into Laura's death by taking Maddie into their confidence. Elsewhere, Leo's battered wife, Shelley, decides to get revenge. I mean, yeah. Uh, All of this is accurate. I would say a revelatory visit with the log lady seems like at least one of them should have been naked. Right? Going into the wood for a revelatory visit seems like nakedness should happen. Well, the log was naked. You're not wrong. The log demanded to be spoken to. Yes, well. The log saw was the actual witness to whatever was going on in the woods. You think it's the ghost of her dead husband? We'll get there. Or it could just be <laughs> we'll a log. So, so what um, Sigmund Freud said, sometimes it's just a log. This, I don't think Sigmund Freud ever thought anything was just the thing it was. Well, he said sometimes, yeah, I think he said sometimes, no, that was a cigar. Sometimes it's just a cigar. Yeah, definitely not Sigmund Freud. Yeah. Um, full disclosure, had to see this episode twice because my sick self totally fell asleep the first time. It wasn't because the episode was boring. Codeine is a hell of a drug. I had no codeine in my system. That oh, was that your was me. medicine. Well, codeine is making me remember you taking codeine. Oh, well, that's fun. It is a hell of a drug, I guess. Um, but I just couldn't stay awake. I think it was because it was dark outside, you know, being 6 o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. I hate the winter. Here we're recording on the solstice, which... I read a very fun headline about today where it said, like, astrologers deemed December 21st, 2017 the worst day of the year. I was like, thanks, everybody. (laughs) That's fun. Okay, anyways. So we did end up watching the episode twice. You ended up watching it with me again, even though... I stayed awake. You stayed awake, but it had been a week. I can't stay awake in a car, but I can stay awake on a couch. That's right. 
It's that sweet, sweet rocking of the pavement. I don't know, because I always fall asleep before it starts happening. There. Um, so, this episode had some twists and turns in it. Twists. That I was not, I did not see coming I, mm. at all. So, we start with Cooper being awoken by revelry and mad about it. It's 4.28 in the morning, and there's some Icelandic debauchery happening. Icelandic debauchery. The coldest kind of debauchery. Uh, he gets on his recorder, asks Diane to send him some earplugs. Silicone earplugs. Yes. Which, I mean, I guess that would work really well, but... I think they must have been a novelty at the time, too. And then he, I guess, huffily goes back to sleep. Um, and then we see him at breakfast the next morning. Uh, where he finds out that this this noise is, in fact, Icelandic debauchery. That was a spoiler, I guess, that I gave, um, because we don't know that right away. Uh, and uh, the business junket from Iceland has arrived. Audrey comes in to get her flirt on. Yes, and he must be really tired because he has no room for her. He doesn't. And... She wants to tell him, oh, I got a job. I'm going to help you with your case. And he cuts her off and asks her how old she is. Hey, Cooper, <clears throat> that's something you probably should have known three or four days ago. I find it interesting that given how intuitive he is about everything else, how she scrambles his powers. And I Those think maybe eyes. that's part of the attraction is that she's some kind of kryptonite. He can't read her the way that he reads everyone else in town. Which is uh, so real easy. weird because she's really putting everything on front street. I don't know well, why. Well, that might be the reason why. Is the reason, uh, the, the reason might be they have trouble reading her is that he's expecting some other He expects everybody to be and hiding just, something right, from exactly. him because of who he is. There's what you get on the surface, and that's it. Although, as we learn later in this episode, she's also very... Oh, no, yeah, she's full-on femme fatale. She's sinister, I yes. think is the word. That is, yes. So, um, but we find that out later. First, um, he asks her how old she is. She says she's 18. I don't know if that's true, but that's the legal answer, so that's the answer she gives him. Um, and then he says, we'll see you later, Audrey. And she's a flutter. Her heart is a flutter. A flutter. Um, and then we, uh, as much as I do not enjoy Ben Horn, he's the better of the Horn brothers. Because mm. next we get Jerry Horn going into Ben's office, talking about how crazy the Icelanders are for the project. Apparently, the Icelanders believe that Ben owns the land. Mm -hmm. The land that we're talking about, of course, is the land of the mill, the mill that is owned by Josie Packer, de Packard, um, that is not owned by Ben. Um, so, But he's got, what, two days until Leo is set to burn that thing down? Right. Uh, and then Jerry goes on about the Icelandic woman that he has fallen for, Heba, He's in love with her, and clearly she's in love with him as well because she gave him an entire leg of lamb. Do you he, check that? Do you think they came in on a private jet? Like, I, how did I, he get a whole leg of lamb from Iceland? I also, don't know. I they, knew someone who smuggled croissants in from Paris on every trip. Her husband was French. Well, you could check and that. He would, he would smuggle so them in. So this must have been a checked thing. Right. Oh, maybe. I mean, also, it's 1990, so I'm pretty sure you could just right. bring a gun on a plane if you were not a corpse, too... A horse, <sighs> a ceiling You can. just have to be cool about it. Just be cool. Um, and then as uh, Jerry and Ben are talking, we... Leland enters, wondering if he can be of any assistance on the deal. Now... Point of clarification that I was unsure on before right now. Um, Leland is Ben's attorney. So that's right. what that, that business relationship was. I wasn't sure if he was an employee of the 
of the or of the uh, hotel or of the his business empire. Right. Any sort of well, is, the relationships are left ambiguous here a lot, and it takes later episodes to clarify it. Right, and it's a little weird that it's that way around because mm-hmm. then Ben was at the morgue on behalf of the Palmer family, right. but he's not legally tied to them in any way. So Leland comes in to offer to help because he wants to keep himself busy, but he can't do anything for more than two and a half minutes before falling into a wet, grieving puddle on the ground. We don't think that that's probably going to be taken up on. And then we are over at Jacques Renault's apartment, where it looks like they're having a party. I was like, this is like day two of them being in this apartment. Right. And they are, A, really taking their time. And B, really tearing this thing apart. So they find in the ceiling another uh, issue of Flesh World. And the ceiling is not where you put porn. I don't want to know how it got there. Well, it got there. I'm going to guess a stool. I don't think it was ejaculated into the ceiling tiles. You never know in this town. You might know this one, though. Um, little Elvis, that's all I'm going to say. And um, so what we come to find out is that the magazine is like a clearinghouse. So basically you put in the ads for the girls, or Jacques, uh, Jacques put in the ads for the girls because he's, I guess, the pimp. Um, and then if you were interested in the girls you'd send a letter to the magazine who mm. would then forward it to the pimp in question. Hard out there for a pimp. Right? Before yeah. Craigslist, this was complicated. No swiping, no nothing. No. It's just postcards and flash mags. That's going to be the new Postcards and flash <laughs> My mags. My memoir? I, yeah, mm. there we go. <laughs> um, then we go over French to... French postcards. <laughs> Then we go over to uh, Leo ha- Leo's house. It's Leo's house, but mm. Leo's not there. Shelly's there cooking breakfast for her man, Bobby. Her boy? Boy. He's very much a boy. Um, and Bobby tells her to tell the police when they ask that she heard Leo and Jacques arguing about Laura the night she died because they're trying to frame him even harder than the well, bloody shirt. It's effectively two of the dumbest people in town making a plot. Pretty much. It really is, which is unfortunate. I want her to be smart, but she just... No, look at her choice. Makes poor, in, in, I know, in she men. makes bad choices. Right. Bad her choice, choice in man number one. and her boyfriend are both... Yep. Yeah. Disasters. Um, and then Andy comes by knocking. Mm-hmm. How convenient. And uh, Shelley dictates what's been told to her to dictate. Um, and then we go out to Ed's gas farm, Big Ed's gas farm, and Norma is coming out to say, hey, Hank got paroled. Um, he's coming home. And at the same time, Ed's like, I can't leave Nadine. And so they basically break up. They're the most adult. Right. They're also the people that you're rooting for the most. They're like the most normal, they have the most normal problems. Like, they're just two people in love who, due to circumstance, can't be together. I find that to be, yeah, they're the one that, the, the couple that I am, um, that's most appealing in the entire town. They're two responsible people who, despite the fact that they're having an affair, still don't want to hurt anybody. They still see this have this notion of responsibility. Right. They're not going to be irresponsible. She's not going to abandon her husband right out of jail, even if she should. Yeah, because he's Because he's up to shenanigans. And he is not going to leave his wife, though he has a perfectly good reason, because she is nuts and violent. Yeah, there's some... I'm still curious to know if we ever find out what the deal with them is. I, I, I hope we do. I hope that's one of the things that finally gets covered, because I'm under the impression that this was not a um, this was a wedding where a shotgun was involved, either metaphorically or an actual shotgun. Yeah, but probably not because there doesn't seem to be children. Mm-hmm. And isn't a shotgun wedding usually because there doesn't seem to be a surviving child. 
That's true. It could be. I mean, but it seems like. Yeah, you could get married and then have a loss. From the conversation they had in the episode prior that there she has something on him, essentially, or she got her hooks into him at some point when the other relationship was... Off. Off. For whatever reason. that, for whatever reason, it could not be undone. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're my favorite couple mm-hmm. um, in, in the show so far. Um, now we're going to go... This is Audrey's orientation, and it's bananas. Right. This girl... She's going to get what she wants. And there's not a damn thing that anybody is going to do to stop her. She goes in to head of HR. Um, and per her dad's suggestion, I guess. Per, she, that's a good description of what she does. Well, she no. She doesn't talk, she purrs. No, no, no. You, you're not listening I'm, to the I'm words that I'm saying. P-E-R um, in your case. Yes. So uh, Dad says, oh, you should work in the wrapping department. The fact that that's a whole department is hilarious to me. But um, And Audrey is not having it. She gets up from her chair, goes around the side of the desk, leans over this grown man, and is like, you're going to put me at the perfume counter or I'm going to tell my father that you touched me inappropriately and you're going to lose your job. And it's just like, God damn. <laughs> just right out there on Front Street. I and, didn't know she had that up her sleeve. Uh, no. But I you, mean, you know, I figured she would uh, make some moves to get where she wanted to go. Right. But I didn't think it was going to be so blatant. Right. Yeah. So... As far as we know, she's going to go to the perfume counter. That's sort of the end of the scene, but my guess is she got From the look on the face of the guy that she threatened, yes, she didn't get to the perfume counter. Yeah. Um, And then we go over to the lake with Donna and James, a couple that is just so meh. Like, neither of them seem to have, what's the word, personality? Like, they're so boring. He says, you know, James wants to spill his secrets because James is just wanting to confess all of the things all of the time. Right. If it's not to the police, then it'll be the Donna. That's good enough. Um, And he says, so my dad that you think is dead, not dead, just a dead beat. Uh, Mom is drunk because she goes out of town on, quote, business trips, which involves Shacking up with men in cheap hotel rooms. I wonder if she's got an account with Flesh World, actually. And then Donna's like, that's okay. And that's it. She, she's literally like, thanks for telling me. They're a little vapid, I think. They are. I mean, this is, it's one of the least annoying scenes that they have between the two of them. Do you think they're a drag on the show as a whole, that they're sort of Silly romance. Is I just... don't. I don't. And I because I think you need something with the young ones that isn't straight obnoxious. Like Bobby is straight obnoxious, right. right? Hey, where's Mike? Donna's quote unquote boyfriend, the blonde, Bobby's friend. Mm. We haven't seen him since like Mm-mm. episode two. Mm. He's gonna pop back up with a gun or something. Anyway, everyone has a gun. <laughs> so we go back to Jacques' apartment. Um, they're still finding stuff two days in, right? Uh, Cooper discovers a, fo- discovers a photo of a log cabin with red drapes. And in the issue with a flesh world, they discover a picture of a scantily clad girl um, with red drapes behind her, which Cooper ties all together to the red drapes in his dream. And so the girl in the good picture... Work. That's right. The girl in the picture must be Laura. Well, it is if you're, you know, Zen. There we go. Um, that's all the evidence that he needs to make a hiking trip to the cabin in question. Now, my question is, is that all the evidence that you need for a warrant? Because no. well. I think they live in a land of without warrants, though. I'm pretty sure there's not a judge involved in this case at this point. Um, well, wait a minute. We're getting there in the outside world. And then Donna and James meet up with Laura's cousin, Maddie, who's... Definitely not Laura. Mm-mm. But she's totally Laura. 
There's a really strong family resemblance. Yeah. <laughs> it's she like looks like she could just be Laura wearing, <laughs> Laura wearing a wig, yeah. Um, and they swear on Laura's memory to help find her killer, but they need Maddie's help. So Laura, I guess, had secret hiding places in her room, you know, for the cocaine. And uh, they need to see if Maddie can find one and hopefully it's the right one. It's so weird. Um, and she's like, I'll help. I'll poke around. It's not weird that they set me up in my dead cousin's room while I stay here and I look exactly like her. Oh, God, they're going to take over my identity. <laughs> Please help me. Oh, yeah, that bothered me, too. She ordered a cherry Coke. Mm-hmm. And then she didn't drink it. And then she didn't drink it. I, I really wanted that cherry Coke. It looked delicious. It looked delicious. You think it was a cherry Coke made with grenadine? I think it was. You know what it was then? Hmm. Pomegranate Coke. Oh, I've blown oh your God, mind. That sounds really good, though, pomegranate Coke. Well, yeah, because grenadine is not cherry. Um, then Norma and Shelly walk in with giant hair, because they just got their hair did. Girls out in the world. Is that um, what girls do? Get beehive hairdos? No, yeah. it is not. Um, Hank is sitting and waiting for Norma, creepy, um, ready to start washing dishes. Um, There's something wrong with that man. He's willingly washing dishes. And that, well, no, he doesn't willingly wash dishes because he asks if he could finish his coffee first. No, mother, that's not how jobs work. (laughs) I didn't come here. I didn't pay you to drink coffee. And then we are at Dr. Jacoby's office with uh, Bobby and Dad and Mom. And 3D glasses. And they really need some therapy. And they're probably not going to talk about the things they need therapy for. Right. Like, you know, dinner table punching. Bobby's being a petulant brat. He starts deflecting any questions. Oh, he asks, Dr. Jacoby, have you ever killed anybody? Implying that he has. Which we have heard implied, but we don't know what the facts or uh, information is. Um, Jacoby insists on -on one-on-one time with Bobby, but um, he really couldn't care less about Bobby. He's using him to find out info about Laura. Um, He asks Bobby what happened the first time you and Laura made love, did you cry? And then did Laura laugh at you? Um, and then, of course, he knows that. He went really big. Yeah. Out of nowhere. Out of just... Right. Although, frankly, Bobby's a smug prick, so... Right. It, it wasn't like he was going to ease into this particular question, right? So, Jacoby knows that this because... Well, if this is true, he knows it because Laura told him. Right either on one of their cassettes or in an actual session. I don't know if she had time to do actual sessions or if they only did the cassettes. She was too busy um, keeping up with her eight or ten jobs that she had while she was snorting, which is probably why she needed to snort coke, I guess. Yes, and she was going to school. Bananas. And she had at least two boyfriends. Right. I'm exhausted. All right. Um, Bobby confesses that he wasn't sad when Laura died. He says that she wanted to die, and she tried to make the world a better place, but every time she tried, something came up uh, inside her and pulled her back down into hell. He breaks down. Oh, yeah, he really does cry. He really does it. A mess. He commits to it. And then he admits that Laura made him sell drugs so she could always have some. Which is a really interesting she tactic. She wouldn't always have them if he was selling it, though. Well, no. You be a supplier, mm-hmm. so you can always supply me. Oh, okay. Right? Like, hey, keep some in the back of the store for me, because when I come by, Mama needs her candy. <laughs> and he says Laura wanted to corrupt people, because that's how she felt about herself. This is, I'm going to reiterate, a child... She was, what, 17? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So then we're out again in the woods with Coop and Truman and Hawk 
and Doc Hayward, yes, the Justice League that you were talking about at the beginning. Um, and they're walking out toward uh, Jacques' cabin, but they make a pit stop at another cabin, and that cabin belongs to Margaret Lanterman, better known as Log Lady. Um, and she says that they're two days late, um, but it's fine because the log does not judge. The log does not judge. And... Like uh, Equus that sees all. Yes. Ooh, Equus log. Hmm. But what's... Never mind. That's not a path I want to go down. Um, so she feeds them tea and cookies, and it's finally time for Cooper to make up for what he totally missed the first time, which is... Ask the log what it saw, you dummy. And so he does. And the log lady translates and says she heard two men and two girls walk near her cabin. And there was laughing. Then one man alone followed behind them. She then describes terrible screams on top of more screams. And then... Followed the, by screams. And then the owls were silenced. Coop surmised that the two men were Jacques and Leo, and the two girls, Laura and Renette. But who was the third man? Who was it? Mary Lyme. Jacoby? Maybe. I don't know. He's the most conspicuous character in the entire town, so I wouldn't, you know... That's true, but maybe he's uh, doing a hiding in plain sight thing. Okay. Um, then they leave the log lady... And they find Jacques' cabin. Inside, there's a record player playing a song over and over again. And Waldo, the minor bird, is in his cage. This reminds Cooper of the part of his dream where the little man says, Where we're from, the bird sings a pretty song. There's always music in the air. Clearly, this is the cabin mm -hmm. that Laura and Ronette were at before the murder. He also finds a poker chip from One-Eyed Jacks with that perfect jagged part where the J is missing, right. which is presumably what was found in her stomach, right? And then we're back up at the hotel. Ugh, this scene was rough. Um, ben and Jerry Horn are hosting a big party. Mostly Jerry is hitting on Heba. Um, Who's twice his size, I think. Yeah, she's a tall girl. She's a statuesque woman. Um, although he doesn't seem... He seems to be awfully kind of well, on the runt side himself. Like, he's a little guy. Yeah, he seems smaller than average. Um, Catherine uh, is there and has been come into another room with her where she asks him what the deal with the poker chip is because mm -hmm. she found that $1,000 poker chip. $1,000. Uh, he makes up... I don't know, even know what he says. He makes up some dumb lie, and she slaps him super hard. And then, um, again and again. She slaps him three times. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he's into it. He seems pretty into it. And then after he asks her if that's out of her system, and then they start making out wildly. Well, On the desk, right? I, yeah, and they're like still sort of in public and still in the building where his right. wife owns and like, y'all, really? Time and a place. Shameless. And then Catherine says, I don't want to wait anymore. Let's burn the mill tonight. They really love some arson. That really gets them all hot and bothered. Um, and Ben says, not so fast. He's going to give Josie one last chance to sell to him. Failing that, he's hired someone to burn the mill to the ground, which is true. He's given Leo... Um, some money and some instructions. Um, someone at the party puts on big band music in the middle of Jerry Horn's speech to the Iceland Icelanders. Icelanders, yeah. Icelanders. And that triggers Leland Palmer into a jerky, spastic, crying, dancing fit. Um holding his hands to his temples and sobbing. Right. And to sort of cover it and make it look like a, a cultural thing, 
Ben like pushes Catherine into the into like into Leland and is like dance with him. Like do what he's doing and dance with him. They all sort of start dancing in it's a, a way that dance craze that's sweeping the nation. But it it's like it's cruel because it's very cruel because she's openly mocking him, putting her hands to her head and pretending to wail and right. She's yeah. she's mocking him. They think that they are. This is what like right. a cultural thing. And what must he be thinking? I mean, he may not even He's know what's not happening. Pay attention to at all what's going on around him. But it is. It's hard to watch. Every, right. All the dancing scenes with Leland are hard to watch. I'm just like, put him at home. Or maybe... Well, this one was hard to watch. It was even hard to watch for um, Audrey, right? Yeah. Who also realizes just how messed up this is. Yeah. How his grief is is um, a selling is being turned into a cultural exchange, a part of this uh, Although, a selling point with this I community. thought she might have been the one that put on the big band music. Mm-hmm. You don't think it was her? Uh, you know, I don't know. We don't really know. She's we done don't things see. like this before. Yeah, she definitely has. Um, so then we get a big plot twist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that horror show is happening in the dance hall. Um, ben goes to his office and meets Josie Packard. What? What is she doing there? And it turns out... And she's fully dressed this time. Yes, she is fully dressed. It's not Catherine and Ben that are planning on double-crossing Josie. Well, I mean, I think Catherine thinks that. But it's actually Ben and Josie that are going to ruin Catherine? But... So we find that out, that those two are working together. But do we find anything else out? Like, how? Why? No, it's left completely in the air. This is the first time we've seen any reference to it. And up until this point, Josie kind of looks like she is almost pathetic. Yes. She starts every scene weeping and yeah, re- and really oddly over-sexual. The sandwich scene from the other episode yeah. comes to mind where she's just lounging in her you know, evening gown, making sandwiches. So I, she's with Ed. No, I'm sorry. She's with Truman. Mm-hmm. Pete, Catherine's husband, clearly loves her. Right. She was married to Catherine's brother mm-hmm. who died under unusual circumstances that she had pre- previously told Truman she believed Ben to be a part of, but right. that doesn't seem to be true anymore. Mm-hmm. Who does who and what does this woman want? I also don't believe that Ben and Josie are I don't think they're a couple, no. Yeah, carnal. Like, does she want Pete? Does she just want to have the mill and not have this horrible harpy? I think that, yeah, there's any number of possibilities. You don't know what it means when you see them Did together. Did she start it? Did Ben start it? Like, right. what's going on? And then also she's got the weird mix-up with Hank. Right. So, who's also unsavory. So, she... Unsavory. We think that she's all innocent, but this episode says, mm-mm, this girl's got wild. Which I kind of like. I kind of like the fact that there's something else going on. Right. Because if not, it would have made her just sort of this perpetual weepy victim. That's true. Who's beautiful and helpless and can't take care of herself. And now you're getting um, something else entirely, which is that maybe she's actually... One of the movers and shakers right. here, and she's just so skilled that she keeps even the town sheriff, who's a sheriff during the day and part-time detective at night, right. that even he's fooled. Yeah. Or maybe she's keeping that relationship up mm-hmm. to keep him fooled. I think it's probably genuine, her relationship with the sheriff. I don't believe Well, yeah, but she's also clearly not telling him the truth all the time mm-hmm. when she's like, I think that Ben has something to do with my husband's death, she wouldn't be working with him if that was a true statement. So she can be in this relationship that may or may not be true, but she's also certainly telling him what she needs him to hear and what she needs him to believe in terms of whatever other machinations she's got going on. It was an interesting change. I didn't see it coming at all. No. So it's, it was a nice big twist. And I'm curious who I think is super bad that mm. turns out to be good. You know right. what I mean? Like, is there a... There's a Snape. Yeah, right. Somewhere in there. Um, then I guess we're back at the Palmer's house, and Maddie remembers that when Laura was younger, she'd hide cigarettes in her bedpost. 
so she discovers in the same spot uh, Laura had a series of cassette tapes. Now, I know how big a cassette tape is, mm-hmm. and I know how big a bedpost usually is. And I had trouble with that, too. I don't understand. Unless it's a mini, mini, mini kind of... Yeah, like the yeah. like um, for dictaphones or something. Right. Um, but she finds cassette tapes and calls Donna to let her know. Uh, and then we flip over to Leo's house. Leo comes home, um, and he's basically ambushed outside of the house by Hank Jennings, who says... I told you to mind the store, not open up your own franchise. Like, you were supposed to keep the business going, not do mm. all this extra stuff. Um, I guess Leo got a little big for his britches while Hank was in jail. And then Leo goes inside, um, you know, mad at being chastised, and goes after Shelly, and Shelly's like, mm, not today, and then pulls out a gun and shoots him. Well, she's on the ground and shoots up. We see it from her point of view. I assume that she has shot him. It's not right. 100% clear. It's not clear that she ever hit her target, right? I mean, I, it seems likely that she's not, unless she's like literally the worst shot in the world, but you only hear the gunshot and we don't know. We'll find out on the next episode. Um, and then we flip back and Cooper is going back up to his room. He opens the door. It is dark, but he sees a shape in his bed. He pulls out his gun and he says, turn on the light. And Audrey, naked Audrey, naked flips Audrey. on the light switch. God bless America. And says, please don't make me leave. Was she crying? You know, at that she, point, I don't remember. I was it, too startled. I think she might have been crying. And then that's where the episode ends. So we don't know if Cooper is going to be a good man and usher this young lady. Or be a very good man. Oh, jeez, don't do that. <laughs> um, Just the man that Audrey needs. So we don't, yeah, so that's where that episode ends. Well, so, I, so, Icelandic chanting in the background. I don't even understand, like, how I fell asleep, because the twists and turns in this episode were intense. I must have been very sick. They were really athletic twists and turns, yes. and you fell asleep in the exhaustion of trying to keep up with them. I couldn't take it. Right. Um, so I'm looking... Episode trivia. This is the first episode that uh, Mark Frost, the co-creator, wrote mm-hmm. by himself. Ben Horn makes a crack that the Icelanders are on nitrous, uh, nitrous oxide, which is what Dennis Hopper is huffing in Blue Velvet. Um, we find out that the log lady's husband died the night after their wedding. That's rough. So she's like Miss Havisham. Yeah. But we wonder... Is the log like the ghost of her husband? It could be. You know what? Maybe. Now that you put it that way, yes. Um, and then Bobby makes allusions to having killed someone. Um, apparently, this is a spoiler but not a spoiler, the storyline is never explored again during the series, but is resolved in Firewalk With Me. Okay. So, that's the movie at the end. So that's the whole episode. Where do you stand on who done it? I think Josie might have done it. <laughs> I think uh, I'm still going with a Wendigo. <laughs> I, I have no clear idea. There are so many suspects. There are so many suspects. Everyone is a suspect. And now it's like, well, if Leo did it, it doesn't, I mean, maybe he got his and now he's dead and now we can There's help. a couple of interesting pieces of trivia that we didn't point out. Why well, didn't know them? Tell me what they are. One of them is that the episode apparently is directed by Caleb Deschanel. Oh, Emily and Zoe's, Zoe's father. No, this is interesting because to one generation it's their father. I understand. To that another generation, they're her, they, they are he his is daughters. One of the greatest American cinematographers ever. And when you look at a film like The Black Stallion or The Natural, there's he's an amazing cinematographer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. He was absolutely astounding. Um, he made some pretty daughters. <laughs> well, he made some pretty movies, too, but I remember seeing uh, uh, Siskel and Ebert review The Natural, and they went on about all the, the good points of that film, but also went on to say the film is practically in, like, smell vision um, I've never seen it. it That's a, the Robert Redford right, baseball movie, right? R- which the, was, has an amazing cast of people to it. 
I only I know mean, Robert Redford. Robert Redford and Kim Basinger and Barbara Hershey and and Wilford Brimley and Darren McGavin Diabetes. and Glenn Close. And it's just like this oh, astounding wow. cast of people. More women than I would have thought. Right. Uh, well, the women shape the story. <clears throat> He's kind of feckless. One, one, the reason why Siskel Ebert mentioned smell-o-vision is that you can practically smell the hay in the early scenes that take place on a farm. The way he is it the light, yeah, and the way he photographed these scenes it, with such an attention to detail, it is amazing. You, you really, you can smell the hot dogs. There's a a, a scene of um, someone laying out the chalk stripes for the the, the baseball diamond, and everything is like it's uh, the impact of his cinematography. On the film, I don't think it would be the same film. Certainly, wouldn't be the same film without it. Did you see that in this episode? Um, it's interesting. I there's a lot of weird touches in this episode, and I'm not sure if I'm reading something some of his individual style into it, or it's just the style of the entire series. It's right. very odd. This episode seemed darker than. And that might have been his, you know, his contribution as well. But um, but yeah, it's amazing. The the Black Stallion, when you watch that film. A good third of the movie is in almost utter silence in terms of human speech. Right. It's a boy and a horse. A boy and a horse? Yeah, the black Oh, I'm thinking of National Velvet. Mm. Which is a girl and a horse. Uh, yes, I know. That's why I was... But, but the black time, there's a, a boy stranded on a desert island with a horse. Oh, right. And there's just a lot of nothing. There's a... There's a so it's entirely on how this uh, man uses a camera, which was amazing. Well, that doesn't really apply to this episode, though, because there's much talking in this episode. There, there is. There's a lot of... Uh, it's not the same. So I think that he probably was more suited to having the, the, the breadth of a motion picture rather than working yeah. on a I also schedule. think that there are other episodes that might have used him right. to better, because I feel like this was one of the more... Um, dialogue-heavy episodes. Right. Like, you could probably have listened to an audio version of this and gotten everything. I don't know that there was a lot of visual gags. Even, like, the leg of lamb gag. Like, Jerry really talks about the lamb. The dance scene is probably the most visual, and it's it's horrifying for some reason. And the seeing Audrey Mm. at the end. I mean, that's a, like, you get it through the audio, mm-hmm. but that visual is pretty striking. Well, something also that was very odd is that the um, apparently the the romance between uh, Audrey and Agent Cooper was effectively stifled by Laura Flynn Boyle. Oh, right. She was dating Kyle MacLachlan at the time. Was that during the second season or the first season? This is apparently, there was going to develop, they were trying very hard to develop a romance between the two characters and it's been leading up to it this entire time. Right. And I think... But I thought that the relationship, the Laura Flynn Boyle relationship with Kyle MacLachlan was second season. No, they didn't develop the relationship because, um, no, they were already a couple, I believe, at this point. Because um, everything in the first season is leading up to... These two becoming a couple of sorts, at least. Right. And Laura well, Flynn Boyle. And I should say, Laura Flynn Boyle is Donna. Mm-hmm. Apparently put her foot down and said, no, I'm, no. <laughs> You're not kissing her. Right, no. Period. So, are you spoiling this for me? Am I going to, then, do we know, then, that he's not going to get it on? Well, get I think on. this is an interesting point to talk about it, because it seems everything is pointing in that direction. Oh, yeah. And then suddenly, it's like, Wait, what? What doesn't? And happen? then we have a small brunette woman right. throwing a hissy fit and saying, "Not today." <laughs> but yeah, I wonder how that worked. I think in a lot of times when you have a set full of young people all the same age. Yeah, and because um, regardless of what they're supposed to be, they are. Well, I think there are two. I think what is it like? Maybe twenty-two to twenty-seven, right. and then like. 40 to 50. Right. Those are the sort of two groups. Because there was a classic Hollywood cast, and then there's the younger cast. And I remember uh, seeing um, a documentary on the making of The Magnificent Seven, uh, the Western, the Uh the first version of it, how uh, one actor mentioned, well, you had all these young guys around. You had Charles Bronson, you had Steve McQueen, and you had 
you know, Charles Bronson's face is James Coburn, but you all had them as these young guys. Right. And so every single scene, someone was trying to steal the scene from each other. Oh, yeah. Because they were all these young guys in competition, and they realized they had to do something to distinguish themselves. And Steve McQueen, at one point, was fidgeting and, and doing something, and Yul Brenner turned to him and just stopped the entire take and said, look, all I have to do is take off my hat and nobody will be looking at you. Because in 1950-whatever, a completely bald man was still sort of a phenomena. So his idea is, all during The Magnificent Seven, he, he, I don't believe he takes his hat off. He might at no, one point. I haven't watched the original. Right. We just saw the remake. The remake. But, but I thought it was pretty funny that he's just like, yeah, I take the hat off, no one's looking at you anymore. So you, know, you can stop with all the... The fidgets and the, the cowboy ticks that you're doing to try to draw the attention to you when everyone else oh, is on okay. screen. This is like Brad Pitt eating. Brad Pitt enjoys to eat. Right. Donald Pleasance. Also, I'm going to eat in every take so that when you cut the film, you have to have continuity with me sticking things in my mouth. Yeah. Which I've actually, there are some comics who when they're doing uh, specials, uh-huh. they will be eating or drinking. Right. Because if I start drinking at the beginning of this joke... You have to use this version of the joke right. instead of cutting it between different nights or whatever. Right. I, is that the end of your mm-hmm. your trivia? Lemuel's trivia corner. <laughs> the stuff that he knew without the internet telling him. And we yeah, so we're both at a loss of who's doing what. Do you have any recommendations? Christmas recommendation? Oh, it doesn't have to be a Christmas recommendation. You know, and that's an interesting one. Um, is it going to be a ghost story? Yes, it would should be, and and um, I now don't tell the history of ghost stories of Christmas because some people don't know about it. Well, there's no real clear indication of when it started, but by the time that Charles Dickens wrote a Christmas Carol, ghost stories on Christmas Eve were already a tradition, and um, if I would have to recommend anybody, it would be M. R. James. Of course, was uh, one of my personal heroes. He wrote. Um, ghost stories. He was a provost of Eton and an Old Testament scholar. There. A, what, a provost of Eton? Eton. Eton. The school. Oh, okay. The provost school. of Eton, the mm. school. I thought you said something about Eden, the place. No. <laughs> so okay. He's a very that. interesting character because he was, um, but he was this very fussy old bachelor who devoted all of his time and energy to Old Testament studies and raising the best youth he could at Eton. Um, and every Christmas Eve, he would invite uh, some of his favorite students to come up to his rooms, and he would, as a tradition, read them a ghost story that he wrote. Right. And now we can get them. Yes, and now we can get them. They're considered the premier ghost stories written in the English language. Now, I have a recollection. Did the BBC do, like, radios? The BBC has done... Starting in 1968, there was a a Jonathan Miller, who was a, a very kind of maverick director did a black-and-white adaptation of Whistle and I'll Come to You, which was a story about a, um, a kind of dotty uh, schoolteacher on holiday at the seashore who finds a whistle made of human bone Ooh. and whistles in it and has this strange kind of encounter with something that's on the verge of maybe a ghost or maybe something inside of himself that's haunting him. Hey, life pro tip. Don't put your mouth on human bone. But again, it's it's very fusty, scholarly people. So when he finds it with this Latin inscription, um, yeah, but human bone, mouth, yes, no. <laughs> but most of uh, most of uh, James' stories are really. I mean, they're all very well written, but they involve a lot of scholarship because this was a brilliant man. Are there ways to listen to them? There's ways of listening to them. There's several recordings that were done by Michael Horton, the English actor. There Is are. Is there like? A website or something um, that you might... You can find most of them on YouTube. As a matter of fact, you oh, can perfect. find all of the ghost stories for Christmas because after that first one that Jonathan Miller did, uh, Lawrence Gordon Clark produced one every year for several years, adaptations of... Uh, right. And it's a tradition that um, Mark Gaddis, who is, mm-hmm. has tried to bring back... Oh, that seems right up right. his alley, yeah. This sort of Because, again, it's like they... Um, if you've ever seen uh, Curse of the Demon, if you've ever seen Drag Me to Hell... Um, they borrow liberally from M.R. James. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, there's even in you know you can draw direct lines between even people as different as H.P. Lovecraft drawing from M.R. James. But um, yeah, he was a really really brilliant scholar. There's recordings of Robert Powell reading uh, his stories. 
So well, just like go to YouTube and search go to YouTube, MR James ghost stories. Right, a series where Christopher Lee, Ooh. who actually was not one of the students who was old enough to be invited to the rooms to hear the stories, but he actually knew MR James. When was he writing? I believe it was through the 20s and 30s. Um, okay. There might have been, I think he'd stopped pretty much. And we're talking 30s. about the 1920s right. and 30s. Yes. Um, so it was a very long time ago, and there's just, there's some really wonderful comedy bits to them. There's, he hints at a larger universe where uh, Dr. Watson, Holmes Dr. Watson, shows up in one of the stories. Oh, interesting. Now, um, these stories, these ghost stories, are all meant to be told. They're meant to be read aloud. Right. So they're not, in, in, like, crazy long. No, they're not crazy long. They're all fairly short. And um, they, you can almost imagine him reading them. There's a, an, uh, an actor whose name I forget now who actually uh, every, uh, not just on uh, Christmas Eve, but he does tours of England, in England, where he, Robert Lloyd Perry, I think is his name, and he does a dramatization of himself as James reading you a story. Right. And, uh, that's it, what I want. And that's kind of what he would do. James would invite the people to his room. He would read by the light of a single candle. So everyone's sitting in there. And That's the people, not enough light. The people in that room were mostly a lot of his students were also Old Testament scholars, but people like uh, M. R. Um, excuse me, uh, E. F. Benson, I don't and know who um, that is. E. G. Swain. There are a lot of uh, authors who went on to uh, make really large contributions to English literature. Okay, sorry, I didn't recognize right. the all of the initials. Right. There's, and strangely enough, they all took initials as their their first names. I would. I would guess that then maybe some of them might have been women. No, no, no women. No, no. Of well, this not. was Eaton. You know, that, uh, he was not at all going to ever publish any of these ghost stories, but he had a friend who insisted that he do it and made some illustrations. There was only four illustrations that were ever finished. So the published works of M. R. James are mm-hmm. just these Christmas ghost stories, no. or he well, wrote other ones. Well, he didn't write any fiction aside from that, except for one children's book, which is actually a very creepy children's book. But other than that, he was very content to just write scholarly, scholarly papers, books right. on you know the Old Testament and the Minor Prophets, on the Apocrypha. So he really thought that was his the work he would be remembered for. The Old Testament and the Apocrypha. That's an interesting combo. Right. He would. Uh, there's a lot of sort of um, references to the Apocrypha also in some of his stories. He likes to make puzzle pieces. So if you also, if you're very fond of puzzle pieces, he's very good for that he's too. Good. So the stories of M. R. James. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. I don't know what I should recommend. I might just end up... Yeah, I'm going to do it. Mm. Hey, Netflix Hallmark movies. Christmas Prince, Christmas Inheritance. They're so good. They're not good. They're bad. Um, But they're not. They're so good. You watched the Christmas Inheritance. I said repeatedly when you came home, you can turn that off. I understand you don't want to watch it. I'm just decorating cookies over here, watching The Christmas Inheritance. And what happened? That movie stayed on till the end. And it was 45 minutes from the end when you got home. Well, it reminded me of when my mom recovered from her triple bypass. We watched all the, like, um, Lifetime yes. Channel thrillers. Oh, because wow. they were Because they were not very thrilling, for one thing. There wasn't any huge, big shocks to them, and they were just sort of undemanding entertainment. That's what I wanted when I was right. decorating my cookies. I was like, look, I love me a Hallmark movie, but they're a little overly saccharine. Mm-hmm. Um, the Christmas Prince and The Christmas Inheritance, both Netflix original movies, apparently both filmed in Canada, uh, are beat for beat what you think they're going to be. Exactly. Um which is exactly what I wanted when I wasn't paying attention to them, when I was rolling out the thousand cookies or whatever that I made. It's fluff, right? right. Why is it, You came in and immediately was like, why is this guy such a jerk? And I'm like, because she needs to end up with him, so her current boyfriend needs to be a villain so that she can end up with him and nobody feels bad about it. Right. And so it was. He was a villain. And well, I... I and having... Um, Grown up, well, with three sisters, I guess. There was a lot of romantic comedies in the yes. background. And so, as I was a kid, so I'd seen them done really well, but 
what always gets me about the Hallmark movies is that there's no surprises. No. At but all. You there's don't no watch twists, these there's movies no for a surprise. You watch these movies to feel good about at the end. You right. just... When the news makes you want to claw your own eyeballs out of mm. your skull right. and then beat somebody with them, you want a Hallmark movie. You want a Christmas prince right. who's roguish and rude, and who we are definitely making out with at the end. <laughs> like, that's what you want, because he's not roguish or rude. He's misunderstood. You know, there, uh, we have a, a mutual friend, Alan Dillard. Hi, Alan. Hi, Alan, who uh, is a Renaissance man uh, in his own right. Indeed. Uh, but one of the things he told me was uh, he had these relationships with authors like... Um, uh, Joyce Carol Oates, I and know. Joyce Carol Oates and Robert Parker, who wrote the Spencer novels, and... And he mentioned uh, nearly getting assaulted by uh, um, Mickey Splain at one point. Because That's he, a real person? Yes, Mickey Splain is. Feels like Mike a Hammer character. is not a real person. There we go. Mickey Thank Splain you. is a real person. Okay. Uh, nearly getting assaulted by Mickey Splain. Neither of them have real names. No. I'm just saying. <laughs> he um, drew a relationship between Mickey Splain's Mike Hammer novels with, you know, uh, busty women and guns and fistfights to the male equivalent of uh, women's romance novels in that it was undemanding entertainment that mm-hmm. just sort of gave you exactly what you wanted. Yes, there's a cookie-cutter format right. to them. You know, There's beats that you're going to hit. Right. And at the end, you're going to go, ah. Which is the exact opposite. And then opposite. you're going to uh-huh. forget it happened. Uh-huh. It's like chewing gum for your brain. You don't have to think about it. Um... My favorite one of these movies, I mean, I like these Christmas movies. I like a Christmas movie. I'll read a romance novel that takes three hours to read because it clears out all the junk in my brain. But um, I would also recommend a movie called The Last Holiday. Why is it The Last Holiday? I don't know if that's what it's actually called. Hold on now. I've got to double check. Um, Because... I don't want to spoil it. Um, you want to spoil it. It's it's Queen Latifah, who's lovely. Um, and totally, I wish she was in more things. She's in something on television now. She is a huge personality. And that's what I, I get every time I just time eminently I watchable. Like, yeah. I want to watch her. Um, yeah, Last Holiday, where she gets a terminal diagnosis. And so she goes to a resort... Um, for Christmas and New Year's, and then what happens happens. It's super fun. It is light. I have watched it like seven times because if it's on, sure I'll watch this. This is lovely. I don't have to worry about it being heavy or sad. I mean, spoiler, she's not really gonna die. So, <laughs> and she gets to kiss LL Cool J at the end, like. It's all great. And I'm sure that scene had a lot of laughter involved with it. These two know, know these each other two, really well. I know, exactly. And is, she's like, no offense, right. but this lady don't love. <laughs> well, it's also very funny because he's uh, apparently in real life kind of a goofball. I believe that. And so, um, and apparently, yeah, there's, it's, it's uh, from what I understand. I believe that. He, I feel like he knows how to not take himself It's a fun set. When, yeah. Well, a guy who calls himself cool, you know, yeah. he's going to have to. And yeah, ladies right. love really okay. Um, so I yes, I recommend those three movies: Christmas mm. Inheritance, The Christmas Prince, and Last Holiday. With we have gone in completely different directions. That's right. If I was going to recommend M.R. James, a tractate mid-off about an inheritance, a stolen book, a room uh, buried under. I'm the understanding earth. the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Comparison. Right. Um, there's a room in this story where a man has insisted on being buried alive in his study. Um, that was really weird. There's, um, yeah, the whole study is buried in We should really end on mine. Mine's an upper. Right. <laughs> but hey, guys, a, listen to one of the great, ghost stories and then go watch a nice or, movie. Or uh, Casting the Rune, which is one of the best ghost stories ever written. Um, it's amazing. And it's creepy and there's a deadline and there's a secret... Uh, runic parchment that gets passed to somebody and don't give everything away. No, no, I'm getting can't. excited. That story is filled with all sorts of great stuff. 
And then watch Queen Latifah. And, and Queen Latifah, who could do an M.R. James adaptation, that would be really great. That would be awesome. Yeah, it would be. Let's pitch it. Okay, I think that's everything. We yeah, you... I don't think there's anywhere else we uh, can we go. Nowhere else to go. <laughs> We've gone everywhere you can go. So we wish you a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Um, we will have another episode out later this week. This is just a special Christmas present for you. Um, if you want to contact us, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at latecomerspod. I'm at Amity Armstrong, both names, at Amity Armstrong. Lemuel still doesn't have Twitter, right? No, not yet. No, not yet. I'm sure someday I will. Um, I've got a new website, amityarmstrong.com, with all of the things that I do. Um, you can find us on Facebook. Look for latecomers. We have made a page. I think I should have made a group, and now I'm not sure what to do. I wasn't invited. As a matter of fact, I had to invite my, you know. That is not true. I invited you first thing. You might have deleted the invitation. Did yep. I? I think that might have been what happened. Anyways, a, a I'm not mad. But I do, I think we might do a group. I Facebook is confusing, and this page really wants me to give it dollars, and I don't love that. So, um, Wait, we're wanting people to give us dollars? No, 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 no. The page wants me to give it dollars to boost oh, okay. its posts, which I think just means put it, like a sponsored ad, right? Mm-hmm. Put it on people who don't know right. me's thing, which, tempting, but also, that's like spam, and I don't love it, so mm. um, I'm avoiding it for now. All right, so that's everything. Happy holidays, and remember, better late than never. Bye. Goodbye.